I can't believe this. For last week I got roped into watching Happy Death Day, and now I'm realizing I'm having the revelation that Calvin's also roped me into watching all of the Halloween sequels for the next <laughs> ten odd years. I hope so. Oh. That that is an ultimate goal. Like this is a fun series, like regardless of quality. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have I have doubts about that. Sincere doubts, but. <laughs> Yeah. Have you seen our views? Like I'm like the third most popular dude on this website because <laughs> I, I talk about Halloween movies. All of them. Yes. Those, those comprehensive articles you did on them are, uh, you know, I, I figured they were the, the best experience I'd have of the films, but now it seems like I'm going to have to actually watch them. Oh God. That's a depressing future. <laughs> yeah. I'll have uh, it can be. I'll have some chainsaws going in the background, so we should have done Texas Chainsaw, but um, that's oh, oh. going to be an audio experience. All right, but I'm not doing any Texas Chainsaw sequels. I'm going to put that out here right now. That that shit is not happening. <laughs> I think they announced a fourth reboot recently of the first movie. Fourth or fifth? Yeah, yeah. I saw a, a poster or something they put up, didn't they? Yeah. And the timeline there is like, somehow even more of a mess than the Halloween series is, so. Is it, would you guys say that the Texas Chainsaw series has even greater diminishing returns than, like, Friday the 13th, or is that oh still the yeah. <laughs> Like, it's it's amazing how fucking awful those movies are. Like, it will, especially the one with, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the one with McConaughey in it. Yeah, right? isn't that, like, the new generation or something? <laughs> yeah, that was the, uh, I, th- I guess that was like the first reboot and it's it's unreal it was um it's you know kind of like with uh not a living dead you had uh you two your two riders you got george and the other guy john russo mm-hmm. well uh, that's how Tex chainsaw was too um there was toby hooper and i think it's kim hinkle and in both of those series the co-writer felt you know like he wasn't represented enough he didn't get the the fame and the glory so they wanted to show their talent and they they just suck ass so <laughs> once they come out and put out these products they're just so inept yeah they're real bad it's a bad track record and uh, just one good movie isn't good for a franchise you need at least two or three but i i do champion <laughs> slightly texas chainsaw 2 i'm kind of sadistic <laughs> in that way Look, uh, any movie that has Dennis Hopper battling with chainsaws can't be all bad. Like, I think that, like, it's, um, it's, it's definitely got some mistakes, <laughs> but, uh, some, I, will yes. be, I will be forever convinced that that was the way to go with a, a sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Just make fun of it because you're, they're not going to top it. Yeah. It's kind of like mocking the audience that didn't get what Texas Chainsaw was all about, like the cosmic horror and just like playing into its worst impulses is a funny ass thing to do too. Mm-hmm. And God. that and it's got the one of the co writers from Paris, Texas is the guy that wrote the script for it, so <laughs> true story. That's what he wrote after Paris, Texas. He he went and did tex, wrote Texas Chainsaw too. Guy likes his Texas movies, I guess. <laughs> no yeah. kidding. Um, so uh, we're getting to the real reason that you're on, which is to discuss Radiohead. Welcome to the new <laughs> Radiohead podcast of the Twin Geeks. So 
Uh, yes. I, I high fidelity my wife, which means that I, I made her listen to all of Hail the Thief and explained each song very carefully and what <laughs> they mean. So a lot of mansplaining going on as we came to the cabin. How does she take it? I think I think pretty well, reasonably well, as well as you can, which is just sitting silently and hoping for it to end. Does she seem enlightened? I think, Jess, are you enlightened now? <laughs> she said, what are you talking about? Well, you didn't do your job. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a feeling that's not very enlightened. She doesn't even know. Um, but I've reached full enlightenment, which is that Hilda Thief might be the best Radiohead. It's hard to say best because like, they have such a range that whatever you're looking for, you can find it in Radiohead. Does Does David like Radiohead? Uh, I don't have too much of a comment, but you know, I think this is a, a fair topic to be had. Like, like I'd object to this if we didn't just do open a podcast with the whole Foo Fighters discussion like two weeks ago. So, <laughs> well. This is what we do now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm impressed you know the Foo Fighters since they didn't come out of the 80s. Because that's usually what I, uh, when I look at you, I think of that Motley Crue shirt. The band shirts I'm getting. Look, I, I even wore a white t-shirt today so Calvin couldn't make fun of me for, for some band shirt that I'm wearing this time. I found out I that he was, he was, I found out he trash talked me on the last episode while I got up from my chair for a moment. What were you? What shirt were you wearing? It was a stick shirt that last time. <laughs> a stick shirt? Yeah, yeah, I had a stick shirt on. Hey, you're so cool. Hey, you're hey. so cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, man. man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if that's sincere or not, but I'm going to take it as sincere anyway. <laughs> I think completely sincere. Just like my love for the Radiohead. Uh, I, it's hard because you start with like Pablo Honey, which is such a typical alt rock album. And then from there, it just develops so many new sounds. So I, I, I could get something new from each one of them. So I value that. But Hilda the Thief just has such a wide range. Like there, there is a pretty typical like Radiohead rock song uh, mm-hmm. that gets good radio play. Um, there's there's so much. And then there's weird stuff like Myoxomatosis that's just like crunchy ass you know, heavy stuff, and it's funny, too. Like, it's a funny song. Ending with, like, A Wolf at the Door. That's an incredible album ender. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, two plus two equals five is, like, the most energetic opener. Like, it starts with, like, the skipping and, you know, like, distortion. It also feels like a political album. Like, it could be so relevant today. So relevant to our times. <laughs> yeah, which is a shame that Hell to the Thief thing just keeps uh, popping up over and over, it seems. <laughs> Who knows? Who knew that we have an entire history of untrustable presidents? Yeah, because it was basically about um, Bush uh, winning the presidency while losing the popular vote. So yeah, (laughs) and then once in a lifetime switch (laughs) in the system. That one time only happened once. (laughs) Well, the album fixed everything, so I'm glad we're here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, like um. Two plus two equals five is probably the most opening song that I can think of on an oh, album. Yeah. It is. It's super opening. Just I, I love the cut, and then it, it is every song on the album does like at least three things. Like they all have at least a few objectives. There's like two songs on it that are like intermission tracks that kind of fade between different ones. It it has a typical like album construction, but every mm. song at least has a few ideas and goes different places, develops into different time signatures or tries a new trick it's all fun there's a like an alternative track list that you can find because uh 
Hell to the Thief was probably their most rushed, yeah. I believe, because they spent so much time in the studio for Kid A and Amnesiac that uh, for Hell to the Thief, they just went in and banged it out and pretty much put out everything they made almost. Well, there's some B-sides, I guess. And uh, years later, Tom York put out this alternate uh, track list. And, but the thing is, you start looking at it, and you're like, well, where's that song? What happened to that? Right. So, like, what are you going to cut? Even nowadays, uh, the like, everybody likes to shit on, like, the gloaming. And mm-hmm. I, I have to have I have to have it. <laughs> yeah, the gloaming's important to the album, I, I, I believe. And we suck young blood so vital. Um, it, and it gets into, like, vampirism as it goes, which is really, like, a fun development in the album. It has these themes going from political to vampirism to, uh, you know, like, countryside like fairy tale to the end um i backdress is an incredible song um oh yeah lots of great stuff i was actually i think turn on the backdress a little bit more because of you last time we had a big radiohead discussion <laughs> which we have like two or three a year because i always go through this, the discography this is very common <laughs> like have you heard of our lord and savior uh radiohead <laughs> uh i've definitely heard your guys's uh preaching of, of, of the gospel <laughs> we're happy to be uh, high fidelity in our audience as yeah. well. we're not as bad as tool fans i don't think but <laughs> don't we have this conversation every so often too only only when I, tool puts out an album like once every decade so yeah so so far we've had one <laughs> actress is just an incredible song that's like stuck in the middle of the album that i think goes undercover like there's like the idiot text and it like pieces on to like that legacy of like these uh weird time signatures and like the swirling techno vibe it's a very strange cool song that anthem chorus and it's in like hard candy i feel like that's where i probably discovered like that song other than like the album i'm just like oh yeah this cool thing i love is here <laughs> weird love, place uh, hard candy for that <laughs> yeah I actually never saw Hard Candy, but I always liked the poster. So there's that. <laughs> do we make um, it back to I'll, movies now? Is that a movie reference? I couldn't tell. Um, I guess we could talk about movies. Movies? If you want. I, I don't know. So we we had a great transition point from talking about Halloween movies to Halloween movies we've watched this year. And then Calvin just had to wedge in his Radiohead discussion, of course. Like, he was just so I excited I think I'm just going to cut all that. And on the way home, I think I'll probably try In Rainbows, see what we both think of that. So. Mm-hmm. Well, they actually got even more albums. Uh, there's the oh, God, it's, going, it's still going. <laughs> <laughs> Moonshape Pool. How do we feel about that in 2020? It's, uh, it gave me life. Yeah gives me a lot of life too um uh, tom york also a good movie composer he does those things and we talk about movies let's talk about some movies uh, horror movies are a thing he did a horror movie like he sea watchers of kevin movies. york uh, tom york kevin york, Kev- kevin kevin york. york. <laughs> i don't know what happened there you guys broke me mm-hmm. tell me york that's what everyone calls me But yes, yeah. it's it's the it's the end of October and Halloween is quickly approaching. And as any good movie watcher, we all have spent the last month watching lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, and lots of horror movies. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, 
for me this year, I'm a, little, I'm a little more sparse than I usually do. I haven't even made it to 31 yet, which uh, is a little sad. But, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to some good stuff, gotten some interesting things. Um, Calvin, I know, is always gets a giant head start, watches 27 well, movies. Let's by go the end through of the years summer. first. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> go through David's first and see what we get. Sure, sure. So, like, we'll get to mine. Um, the big things that I really liked this year, I, I came on a couple episodes ago and we talked about Psycho 2 briefly, and that was nice. That was a fun one. Uh, but I'd say the one that left the biggest impression was probably the first I watched this year, actually, which was uh, Herzog's Nosferatu. Mm. And and uh, I had lofty expectations for it because everyone I knew talked about how great it was, how it kind of belonged in the conversation of those 70s 80s remakes of classic horrors that are like just as good as as the originals and uh i was very surprised with how it did actually live up to that sincerely in 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 lots and lots of ways and not only was it true to murnau's original film you know and the icon but it's uh you know it kind of did its own thing in very specific ways the way it photographed the the german countryside and incorporated the setting so much in the story the overall intense atmosphere and this idea of emphasizing the notion of the vampire bringing with him a, a plague to the country with these millions of rats in the film it feels like it's it, it was really incredible stuff and of course klaus kinski is phenomenal uh as the monster he is in everything and uh this is one of his best performances but uh probably even more surprised by bruno gans playing jonathan harker here like probably the first time like I've been convinced by that character is not just like a total dunce in any other kind of uh, adaptation. <laughs> you mean you didn't love uh, Keanu's? No, no. And... Look, I love, I love Coppola's Dracula. I think we talked about it last year, uh, you know, in a whole episode, but like that's indefensible. <laughs> I know where the bastard sleeps. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I would say that one was the biggest highlight for me, which makes sense. Big heavy hitter horror film I hadn't gotten to yet and uh, definitely lives up to the hype. The one thing, it's been a while since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I remember is just the the intro. Yeah. With uh, the mummies when it isn't like this big flowing tracking shot, just all these creepy ass mummies and this dread induced score. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely like that. The score was uh, very effective, but uh, it also was kind of like all sorts of different things. It was doing a lot of things at once. Sometimes it was like this kind of electronic thing. Sometimes it was atmospheric. And sometimes it was this big, like, you know, operatic kind of sweeping score and such. So, I mean, it was it was really doing a lot. Where did you watch it at? Did you uh, watch it on? I watched it on the, the Criterion channel. It was part of their 70s package. That was the quality. Was it okay? It was great. Yeah, it's good. I'm I'm betting it's probably the same Blu-ray transfer that the Shout has. Mm. I'm due for a rewatch. I mean, highly recommend. Great, great yeah. movie. <laughs> I'm really interested in uh, what Jesse brought too. Uh, yeah. We haven't gone over your horror month at all, so I mean, go into whatever you'd like, but especially highlights would be cool. Uh, let's see. I think I'm. 23 movies in so far is today the 24th today's 24th good i'm on track um i started the month with i usually start the month with a big heavy hitter from the past year i always try to like last year was midsummer um this year was 
little bit more scarce, but uh, got the Invisible Man in there. And I'm fully on the Lee Winnell train now. Like, um, I thought the the themes were just uh, incredibly relevant, and it's like he really brought this minimalist approach. It's like, um, you know, most Invisible Man, when you think of, you see like a guy, um, like empty clothes running around, and this, it's more just like, what the hell's going on in the room and shit, you know, looking for stuff that's moved around and things like that. But I was really impressed with it. And what else? I watched an anime movie. So there's... And what anime? Perfect Blue. Oh, that's oh, a good it's one. A, Satoshi Kon, yeah. What, one yeah. of the good ones, yeah. Yeah, so I lucked out and saw one of the good ones. I'm not... <laughs> too corrupted and seem to be kind of self-aware about how um, creepy that whole thing can be. And uh, I watched a fair amount of sleaze. I saw Day of the Woman. <laughs> Day, of the, Day of the Woman, a.k.a. I Spit on Your Grave. Mm. Uh, That's the more familiar great poster. name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Calvin, Calvin's a big fan of that. Uh, we don't need to get into it, but uh, really putting me on the spot. It's uh, been on your grave. It has a cool poster. I, I, I'm yeah. sure I was a high schooler. You know, I, I don't know what it would feel like today. <laughs> I was a high school. Um. So another, what's the deal with the poster? It's like it's Halle Berry on it. it it's no, not, no, like, not, not, no. It's not it? Holly. It's not Holly Berry. Who is it? Demi uh, Moore. Yeah. Demi Moore. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. So that's a Demi Moore. I don't know a, how you would confuse those two. Like, aside from just like the ethnicity issue there, they're very clearly not same, Berry. Same people. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. And what else? I think uh, the best movie I've seen this month is Frankenheimer's uh, Seconds. Oh yeah, I can talk about Seconds because I actually watched that last month. I think because Seconds was was fantastic. It was the, it's the scariest thing I've seen this month. It it terrified me in some spots, like this existential dread. Definitely, uh, I think it's one of those that that will probably benefit even more from like kind of multiple intakes there because it is a little disorienting. It's you know it's definitely kind of an experience in 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 many ways. Uh, one might say even Lynchian in some aspects, mm-hmm. and particularly like a just. The, I don't know the way they they shot it. It's in black and white. It uses these wide angle lenses constantly, and uh, like the surgery scenes, like rhinoplasty oh, and everything, yeah. just very real. I think they used a real footage in some of that. De- definitely just, for some of those, I recall. It was shot by uh, James Wong Howe, who of course is you know one of the famous cinematographers of classic Hollywood. Uh, he shot, uh, you know, probably his best film that he ever shot was uh, Sweet Smell of Success, if you, if you guys recall that mm. one as well. Beautiful film. Have you seen it, Cal? Seconds, yeah. I, I like Seconds a lot, and it goes into, like, the Manchurian Candidate and, like, those, like, identity things that I'm kind of interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, seconds is pretty neat. Frankenheimer really did Manchurian Candidate, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he did. So. Yep, that was Frankenheimer. So it has a... Has a lot of that DNA in it. Yeah, I would I would say it's probably the at least my favorite Frankenheimer that I've seen so far. It's so bizarre and surreal at times, and, and really like disorienting. Rock Hudson gives a fantastic performance in it. 
uh, and, oh, and it's, it's actually, yeah, you know, it's hard to disagree with you there. It's, it's a pretty fantastic. And, uh, I think I do agree that probably the cinematography is the best aspect because it is so wonderfully, uh, you know, kind of transformative and, and bizarre. In that the, uh, the paranoia it induces, mm-hmm. And it's not like obvious paranoia. It's just that kind of the like, like you feel like you have to look over your shoulder, kind of watching the movie, because it definitely feels like something weird is going on. Yeah, (laughs) it's so good at building that. Yeah, I mean, it's so good at like creating suspense and maintaining that disbelief and the concept and everything. It feels good. Uh, We should get you back for a podcast on that. Yeah, I'd like to like go into the ending, and it'd be a uh, wrong to do right now. So, <laughs> yeah, like somebody like yeah, that sounds like a cool movie. I should check that out, and don't wanna. Yeah, you, you don't want to say too much about it because there is important plot developments. Uh, but you know, so the less said, the better. But you know, that's a a three for recommendation here to check out John Frankenheimer's Seconds. Let's see, and I know I've seen so many movies this month; it's hard to keep track. <laughs> I've got a lot of heavy hitters here towards the end. Like I saved uh, Polanski's The Tenet, um, Phantom of the Opera, the OG, and uh, Corman's Mask of the Red Death. So October's like a religion for me. Yeah. I'm in cinema heaven right now. So I think we're all distraction from from the real horrors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Definitely agree with that. You know, and this is the best time to view them. I'm always happy to have it. Uh, Calvin, did you get to any uh, big, big horrors for you? Any big takeaways this year? Probably Some in big July. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, the coolest thing I saw was Possessor before the month even began. Um, right, right. Lord, lord it over uh, us a little bit more. Why don't you? <laughs> I'm probably going to get into the 40s. I think I'm like mid 30s now for what I've seen. So. Even with the head start, I'm still doing laps around you guys, which is nice. Uh, oh, really? It, yeah. I'll probably double your amounts and call it good. Uh, <laughs> I haven't really watched anything that's left a huge impact the last week since we last did it, uh, which is just a few days ago, really. Uh, there's uh, The two things I really want to talk about are uh, let's scare Jessica to death. Um, that's really spread online, which I'm so glad because I saw it as like a shitty VHS and it was something I was always looking for and looking forward to. It was so unavailable. Um, and uh, it has such a deceptive title and poster that it also doesn't sell itself, which doesn't help after the unavailability. Yeah. And, uh, I kind of love the title. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of like how subversive it is because you can never expect that this is what this movie is going to be about. Um, and, and it gets more into like mental health and plays into that in a really unique, fascinating way. Well, also having that like uh, foggy 70s horror aesthetic that's really my ball game anyway. Uh, there's so much I like about it. I like the lead actress. I, I like how it develops. And I love that it's a different thing than you could ever expect. I, I like the deceptive poster even. I, I think it's all fun stuff. Yeah, I didn't expect the, uh, the type of uh, horror tropes that it would bring in. They, yeah. they just kind of came out of nowhere. And it's easy for me to root for uh, very low-budget horror movies that come out of the '70s. Like, there's just something about that whole that whole vibe that I just dig into, like the Halloweens and the Phantasms, and I throw Jessica in there as well. I think it was shot for like two hundred thousand. Oh yeah, yeah. If that, I mean, it's it does so much with so little too. I, I think that 
area that era is so creative with horror. Yeah, and well, it's, the... it's really exploring these ideas for the first time. Really, I mean, there's not there's not so many mental health horror movies from like the fifties, right? Well, there's few horror films from the fifties and forties in general because of you know censorship ship regulations and such. Like once once the the end of the sixties came and the studio system collapsed and you know the uh, rating systems was enacted instead, like the floodgates were just opened and, and horror really shifted. Like literally the year after the rating system was enacted, you got Rosemary's Baby. Night of the Living Dead and Targets, all of which like shattered the illusion of what horror movies could and, and would be going forward. Um, it yeah. just impresses me so much. I, I haven't seen it yet this year, but I'm excited that everyone else has, and I am going to see it tonight with my wife, who's named Jessica. So that's an easy <laughs> sell, and I do like the title for that reason. Yeah, it's, it's really it blown a silly up title, isn't our... it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It reminds me of like a Giallo title, title or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what, what, Very what's corny. The, what's, um, what's the duckling one? That one always makes me laugh. Uh, who could torture... Oh, uh, a, don't touch... I'm thinking, don't torture the duckling. Or so, something like that. Who could kill a child or something. It's, 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 a, <laughs> that, it's a really silly, silly title. <laughs> don't don't torture the duckling. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> I watched one this month that was uh, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. Right. <laughs> That's uh quite the title there. Uh and almost sounds more like a porn title, doesn't it? It's kinda like a porn itself, so is it? <laughs> it's a Sergio Martino movie and he is he's pretty far up there on uh being the king of sleaze. He's but I don't know, he's got this amazing eye that just sort of makes it all valid and it pisses me off at the same time. He made a torso i don't know if you've heard of that no nope, i haven't heard of that one torso for like two-thirds of its running time is just the most generic sleazy um italian giallo flick that you can think of like there's the only it seems like the only point about it is to be just general schlock and sleaze and then all of a sudden in the last third it just becomes this like great horror movie out of nowhere and you're like what what the hell so you gotta check out uh yeah torso sometime my my experience with uh italian horror films like the giallos and such has been limited thus far like i kind of just barely dipped my toes in last year with argento uh mm. so maybe maybe going forward i'm gonna have to carve out like a block of them for you know uh next year or something maybe, maybe just like a small collection of them or something maybe space them out with some other stuff it's, yeah. it's easy to overload on that giallo well same thing like you know I do like what Jesse does, for instance, like, and he's making his way through, like, the universal horror films. I noticed, mm -hmm. like, one each year. I saw that you watched uh, House of Frankenstein this year and uh, seemed to be thoroughly Close. disappointed. <laughs> it was oh. um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Right, actually. right. That's what it is. Yeah. How, House is the next one, isn't it? Yeah, House of Frankenstein's the next, and then it's House of Dracula. I think they're basically the same movie. They just reuse the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm being, I'm joking, but uh, I'm kind of not. But yeah, it's, it's definitely where um, Universal Horror just shit the bed. But it actually saved the studio, I guess, according to Wikipedia. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it needed saving after Son of Frankenstein. You son of a bitch. <laughs> no, Son of a Frankenstein. But same thing. This, this, this will never go away. <laughs> <laughs> the heretic. 
<laughs> so, uh, uh, that, are you guys celebrating Christmas tomorrow? Is that what's going on? Is that why you're at Cabin? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I well, it's another one. Uh, Ganja and Hess is the other thing that I just wanted to highlight. Uh, just having these two available, uh, let's scare Jessica and Ganja and Hess, which are really cool. And I discovered that one in the horror noir, the Shutter yes. documentary, and that really stood out to me. Is like. I gotta watch this right now. This is fucking crazy. I don't know about this movie. Um, I think that's. I think that was the big takeaway for everyone. Was a. This is a must see movie. Um, I I know David's watched it has a little bit different feelings, and and I still feel confused. It's been like a year. So, uh, there's there's a lot more digging to do here. I think. Yeah, it's it's definitely not a straightforward kind of film that you would no. generally accept. I would I would firmly call it an art house horror. Uh, and it's, it's it's a very kind of evocative film and it's made on like this really dingy kind of like like you know low budget uh and it's this expression of like you know uh addiction and and you know culture and and merging it with his ideas of vampirism and it is just like so much more uh you know kind of esoteric in what it's going for so uh, it's not that I thought it was bad per se, or that I did not have a good of time course. watching it. It just, it definitely was like a lot to try and deconstruct. It, it definitely puts the honest on you as the viewer to find the meaning in it, which can be a very satisfying experience in and of itself. It's a movie that's doing a lot too. I, there's a lot of things there and a lot to process. So like an immediate reflection that, oh, it's, it's you know, not premiere, it's, or it's art house. I, I could see it. it I, I could see it being divisive, which is also why interesting. Of course, there's, of course. There's a lot there. I feel like anything that divisive, there's so much more to dig into. If you get it right away, there can't be anything there. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna draft up a Twin Geeks drinking game here pretty soon, and that's gonna be <laughs> one of them for sure. Shot every time Calvin says it's divisive, so I like it. <laughs> Happy Death Day and divisive. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, actually haven't got to see it yet it's it's on my okay. list i'm like a a few days out from watching it it's uh i've noticed yeah. at least within our circle we didn't really plan it but it jessica and ganja and hiss has just ended up on like pretty much everybody's list all once uh, you know big uh, kind of interesting titles like that once they're made available through something like the criterion channels 70s horror block which is you know really a, a godsend for some of these you know everyone's gonna try and want to get to them uh rightfully so because what are the odds that these kind of more obscure titles are going to pop up again in any kind of easily, you know, reachable format uh, in the future. And have you seen that meme? It's like a, the difference of watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Shutter or Criterion. You know, yeah. one is for cultured yeah. people. And if it becomes available there, you got to watch it there so you get a cultured experience. Absolutely. Is that, yeah, that cult of Criterion. Well, uh, I know we have a, uh, other movies besides horror ones we've been watching, or at least there's one that's kind of on everyone's mind right now. Hmm? Calvin, you got a you got a take on this, right? Which movie? Borat. There's a new oh. Borat movie oh. out. <laughs> oh, there is. I I've forgotten about it since I've watched it. Really? That, that, that fast? <laughs> yes. I it, it's really a nothing movie. I mean, how do you guys feel about Borat? Is that a good movie? I'm afraid uh, to revisit it. <laughs> yeah, me too. In a way. I didn't do it for that reason. I don't. I don't want to revisit that. And I had fun the first time. So B Borat was definitely kind of like a cultural, like you know, phenomenon when it came out. I don't know if it was more, you know, like I don't think it was necessarily because of the 
political commentary that it kind of sparked. Like that's not what people yeah. took away from Bullrad, at least when, when I, you know, was kind of viewing it, like people really attached on. It's the pranks, it. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the pranky aspect. And like, there's also, there's, there's kind of like, at least from where I was definitely, I, I think an undercurrent of r- r- racist, like caricature that, that people glommed onto, you know, yeah. that, that it wasn't so much that they were like seeing Conan's like caricature of, of the, you know, Middle Eastern uh, person as, as like a, a bad thing. Like they were, they were totally like all in on mocking that and, you know, yeah. so in a way he's effective still at provoking that and, and getting people to expose their prejudice and, you know, racism, but uh, is it is it for the best? Is it effective in the grand scheme? <laughs> it's just coming off his show, Who is America on Showtime, which I found really effective at exploiting and figuring out like social systems and presenting them in an interesting novel way. Uh, this, not so much for me. Uh, I, I like the Bo-Rad character. I just like Sasha Baron Cohen anyway. He was just fantastic in Trial of Chicago 7. Uh, the one thing about that movie I highly recommend is him in it. I mean, he does such a good job as the leader of that group. And uh, for here, um, like that whole movie is just playing off his chemistry of everyone else. Those are the only scenes that really matter. Like his, him doing his little stand-up routine and how that uh, kind of intercuts the sections of the movie. That's perfect. Here he goes and gets his daughter from now to diminish Kazakhstan um, and brings her back to America to go find Mike Pence and uh, she's trying to find liberation by offering his daughter to Mike Pence. So he breaks into like their meetings and he's like carrying her over his shoulder. And, uh, you know, I, I think that kind of stuff is kind of a non-starter, but then he gets to rallies in Washington state and I don't realize how close to home all yeah. this alt-right activity is. I remember when those videos leaked of him at those, those rallies and he was doing the call and response thing. Uh, and, we, and we watched those and we kind of like, Oh, that's, a little too close to home for us here. I mean, I don't live yeah. in Kentucky. I haven't seen a MAGA hat before. <laughs> I, I've, yeah. I I think I told the story on here once where I saw one in someone's backseat and I was like, ah! Yeah. I just haven't seen one. I mean, I've seen like Trump billboards and yards at most, or posters and yards. That's the most I've seen. Um, I, I have family who, who probably likes him, uh, disowned now. Uh, there's, <laughs> I, I just don't feel like it's ever that close to home. And then I get there and they're like, you know, um, what was he saying like uh, do something like the Saudis do and he's like yeah. prompting them to like let's infect them with the Wuhan flu like the Saudis do or something like that uh, it, Jesus, bro. chop them up like the Saudis do thanks to my wife's uh, contribution yeah. uh, mm-hmm. she's helpful for filling in um, there's uh, there's also the bit with Rudy Giuliani which is he's absolutely masturbating in that scene uh, nobody tucks their shirt in like that yeah, I, I have I, a. I've seen an off-screen clip. Yeah, and he's yeah. moaning really, during it. <laughs> it's really good at its best moments. Like it's it's all home runs and strikeouts with Bo Rat, just like the original. I think like it's, you're either having the best time at the movies or you're like, oh, this is fine. I, I've noticed that it's the most popularly reviewed movie of the year. I think for my friends on Letterbox, like uh, there's already eighty <laughs> something reviews from my Letterbox friends. It so was it was that, really that smart marketing. Happens. I think it was really smart marketing for Amazon to kind of scoop it up like that and then release it just before the election here. Like everyone's kind of like clamoring to go and and see this right now because of its mm-hmm. political relevancy. But 
Uh, it doesn't have the freshness, of course, of that. And I think it's because it's built so much more around like the very, very specific aspects of the, the Trump re-election campaign here, as opposed to just general Bush America politics. Yeah, the first one was, sure. it's, it just, it's uh, going to show its age very quickly. Yeah, I think I you're right that it has like, a, it came out like on election or a, what was a debate night on the last debate. And that was the ideal time. Like people are either choosing this or the debate. And many of my friends were siding with this. Like that's, I, I think that's telling at the moment, but it doesn't last beyond January. I don't think. No, wow. I think it'll be uh, gone. Uh, although I guess, I guess uh, the only other thing to consider is uh, how interesting, like all of this will kind of fit into the history books when all that's kind of written and we're reflecting back on this uh, time period in America, which is just going to be a nasty grease stain on, on the apron of our history. <laughs> when we're studying Borat 2 in school, they emailed me <laughs> telling me only to call it Borat subsequent movie. Yeah, film, you, so you can't call rebel. it Borat 2. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I've broken NDA and they're, they're coming for me now, the press police. Mm-hmm. They're going to chop you up like the Saudis do. <laughs> <laughs> Infect me with the Wuhan flu and chop me up like the Saudis do. Uh, fine. I mean, it's fine. I think it, it has really high moments and extreme desperate lows. I, I feel like it's it's trying so hard to work that new storyline about the daughter that uh, that wraparound think, can always... That's the thing, because I talked, I talked with... Uh, Kaz last night a little bit about the movie because he said he watched it too and he said he thought the movie didn't work well when it tried to force a narrative and I think yeah. that, that made sense to me that the, the character of Bullrat works because it's like more like a performance art thing or it's like a provocative yes. kind of like mockumentary news kind of thing uh, that, that pushes people to kind of expose themselves as a, as a kind of document rather than making it about a story with this and trying to make this character real i think that's kind of the mistake that you can make with it it was smart to wait 14 years like everyone knows bo right now and he needed some space to be able to do it definitely you couldn't do this like immediately after yeah i guess the most notable thing is just how easy it was for him to like infiltrate uh, rudy giuliani circle and all all she had to do is call his uh secretary and she's like I'd like an interview with your boss. And then she was in. And <laughs> despite COVID being a thing. So here's the other thing about the movie. About 20 minutes in, it's very clear that COVID's just become widespread. Everyone starts donning masks like immediately. And then the rest of the movie, I think it's just an incredible thing. Anything gets made this year. So in some way, I could see how the execution could have gone differently and how that kind of sidelined some of their plans. Uh, but it's good that somehow they still got Giuliani unmasked doing an interview where they're joking about COVID and stuff and how Trump's going to be okay and then you know she like lures him to her bed and he's rubbing her leg it doesn't even matter if he didn't have any attention yeah he's a married man right I believe no not anymore yeah it well again it's not not that that's an important thing like the whole situation is just kind of gross but like not illegal necessarily and and that's kind of what it's just exposing there obviously there's not going to be any consequence from it but to comment on what you're saying about the turnaround, I think just, just the fact that any movie gets made in less than a year's time span, you know, from conception to completion, let alone, yeah. you know, uh, during a, you know, worldwide, you know, pandemic, that's, that's incredible. So feet in all and of mo- itself. All movies are kind of miracles in themselves. Uh, and especially during this Rona time, it's incredible that anyone makes anything. And I don't know how they do it. Uh, and 
and that definitely affects the movie but it's also a cool thing if you're going to watch it watch it right now though i mean no yeah. use yeah. watching it in a month if if you it'll, wait it'll be gone <laughs> yeah right it, it won't have the cult growing power like our uh, feature film does this this week absolutely yeah. not <laughs> It's our feature film. Happy Death Day 2? No, 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 no. We're getting around uh, to Halloween 3. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jesse's here, of course. Resident Halloween expert, enthusiast, obsessive. It's it's my superpower and my curse. I took notes today. Check it out. You're you're Michael Myers curse? Oh, wow. Those are legit notes. I was just just going to sing the Silver Shamrock song over and over again. (laughs) I thought about uh, doing just a whole vocal um, performance of the entire musical score for you, but it's a great, it's a great score. I'd like to hear that. Beep, 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 beep. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty, much, pretty much you do that. And I do the. It's amazing how brilliant I think that is when I'm watching it. <laughs> and it's literally all it is. It's just beeps and boops and squeals. Well, it's effective though, like starting out with that and and having the score front and center. Uh, I mean, that like synthy like last era of like the horror movie synth. That's it, a fun era. Oh yeah, it's a it's a fantastic uh, like tone setter, and the the fact of like going all in on synthesizers, uh, uh, really to reflect the kind of like robotic and science fictiony nature of the film, I think is is a real great. Uh, stroke of genius there and and having the skills of course of of carpenter uh, on the film even though he's not directing this one it, you know kind of keeps the spirit of the series alive uh y- you want to give us a little background uh on the film jesse so we can talk about why we aren't talking about two and just skip to three <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that's a good idea i was thinking about where we start but uh basically talking about its origin so halloween 2 um was very forced Basically, Carpenter was forced to do it under, um, I believe, he was sued by the producers, like Irwin the Blondes. And basically, the story there was that um, Halloween was a smash, and, you know, they were ready to go for Carpenter's next movie. The Blondes, I believe, was on a plane flight with another executive from another company and was talking about some projects he's going to do with Carpenter, and he mentions The Fog. And, you know, the guy's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That sounds fun. And then the next day, that executive gets in touch with Carpenter and basically swipes him. And so Carpenter goes and makes the fog with somebody else. Yablons is pissed. So he sues Carpenter and to their settlement was basically, hey, uh, yeah, you can go do the fog. That's fine. But you have to make Halloween 2 with us. So Carpenter basically just got drunk and hair out of script. And there's Halloween 2. But one thing he decided to do was to definitely kill off the Michael Myers character, which, you know, we haven't seen him since. So rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah. And um, so basically then I had the idea, well, let's just keep going. Let's uh, go. Let's see. Back then with the anthology things would be Twilight Zone, I guess. So let's take more of a Twilight Zone kind of approach to this and let's turn into an anthology. And that's probably my favorite thing about this movie, which I'll probably get into here in a bit. And uh, so at that point, they decided to go with Tommy Lee Wallace as director. Now, I'm sure you all know Tommy Lee Wallace was played a big part in the original Halloween. He's the uh, 
he was the production designer. He played Michael Myers. He was the editor. He was just kind of like the guy that just sat around like, well, we need somebody to be this person. And you're like, well, what does that person do? I don't know. Just go do it. And uh, he did it. And he was initially asked to be Halloween 2's director. And he agreed until he saw the script. And then he backed out and said, nah, I'm, this basically sucks to ask John. I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, he, then he got offered Halloween 3, and it was kind of like he thought it was like uh, just rebuilding that relationship that he thought that they had lost. So from that point, they're like, okay, we got this new approach. And the idea was to have an anthology series and from that anthology series, you can make sequels to those individual movies and just have Halloweens everywhere, which, of course, didn't happen. I mean, you could say they, like, messed it up right by the second movie. Like, Halloween could have gone this direction. And, you know, originally, like, the Babysitter Murders, right, was, like, the original title. So yes. Originally, they could have really spun this off without Michael coming back. And uh, this seems like the original intent in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might yeah, be more that like yeah I don't know if they ever thought about sequels in general but like I, the prospect obviously was attractive that this idea that they could make a, a Halloween themed you know movie every year uh, but have the creative freedom with that concept to do any and everything like because obviously Halloween 3 has nothing to do with Michael Myers it's a plot about Halloween masks and robots and Celtic <laughs> you know rituals and shit it's, it's a bonkers movie but it's it's such a riot and it's dripping with holiday aesthetics yes absolutely and uh it was written originally like the the credit says it was written and directed by tommy lee wallace but uh deborah hill carpenter's uh then i believe still girlfriend and writing partner and producer she's the one who had the idea of mixing like the supernatural Halloween traditions with technology. And from that point they got, I believe his name is Nigel Neal. He's the guy who created the Quatermass character over with those UK films in the series. I don't know if you guys have seen any of the Quatermass films. No, but Car <laughs> no. Carpenter's like, Oh, you haven't uh, check out Quatermass. Check out Quatermass in the pit. Write that down. All right. And, yep. uh, Carpenter's just a huge fan. Like um, a couple of his films are just kind of dipping into that vibe. And one of them is this, even though this isn't, you know, he didn't direct it. It's still a Carpenter production. Yeah. He's and, got a creative hand in this film, like unmistakably, I would say beyond just the uh, composition and such. Definitely. And Prince of Darkness as well really has those vibes. And so the one thing I did between these watches, uh, went and saw Prince of Darkness and, I think what I see in that is what it could have felt like if Carpenter maybe handled this material. Yeah. It does a lot of correlations, actually. Yeah, it really does. Like, now I'm thinking about it, the whole, just the fusion of technology and the supernatural. I don't know. I guess uh, Quatermass is, does the same thing, and that's why he was drawn to it. Yeah, but, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of, like, the holiday ritual part of it, I think that's why I love this so much because it is so authentically Halloween. It's like the one in the series where Halloween is plot and premise. Like it, it's, it's just part and parcel part of this movie. It, it matters. 
Yeah. Yes. The, the the holiday is obviously like the like like motivating factor here, and like I said earlier, it is it is dripping in that. I I shudder to think of another film that is about is is as about the holiday as this one is. Uh, and you know you just have that feeling everywhere the masks are, are such an inspired design choice uh in mm -hmm. them and and having them littered throughout the film and seeing so many of them like j just the image of trick-or-treaters running up and down you know the sidewalks and stuff and wearing all of their masks and costumes and stuff this is the kind of movie that i look forward to for this you know like like this season and watching in october because it brings me back to that that time period and that you know the the pure jubilance and, and you know fun of going around as, as kids you know begging for candy mm -hmm. i love that the horror of it is tied into halloween mess that makes it so fun to play into like that tradition for kids and also going back to like the celtic traditions and looking at like where you know like what like like sam hayne and like all these old halloweeny traditions of like halloween tree is my favorite kids movie because it does all that and i feel the same way here that we're looking um, it touches on different things about the holiday that make it so unique uh, compared to any other holiday. I feel like it has really fun, mystical value. And, and it's very horror literate is another cool thing about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like, uh, it seems like it's touching on every single aspect. You know, it's got the traditions of Halloween, you know, the Celtic traditions, and then the commercialization of it. Yep, there's and, there's definitely that commercial commentary aspect to it, and the the kind of the commodification of of holidays, you know, it's got that little bit of commentary kind of sprinkled on top. Yeah, which Carpenter's touched on that those sort of themes, anti-capitalist type themes uh, throughout his career, but it's very obvious here, especially with uh, the villain. <laughs> yeah, Connell Cochran, he's like the most I Irish guy possible. <laughs> uh <laughs> he's he's really great uh and he's pl played by uh was it dan o'harley <laughs> there you go dan I, guess they wanted, I guess originally they wanted redheads for this part but they couldn't find any that looked menacing enough so they just went with like these the angriest looking guys they could find it it totally worked <laughs> for, the, uh, for, for the henchmen you mean yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, one of the things I loved most is like I remember the first time watching Halloween three and being uh, apprehensive because I infamously uh, it was not well received among audiences at the time and is you know is only more recently kind of finding its place in, in the canon and and getting uh, the kind of due diligence and respected as just just a base as a film to begin with. Yeah, like I don't know mm. if you guys have looked at like the ratings on like IMDb or Letterbox for it, but they're in the oh, toilet. Oh, of course. And it's I, I like awful. it because it's I like it because it's divisive. Gosh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but the the I remember the first time watching it, the opening like just really grabbed me because it's dynamic and immediate. It's just got this guy like you know, like kind of running away and they get to like him at the, the hospital and just the guy, you know, this this unfeeling kind of like almost Michael Myersy kind of guy with his faceless expression, you know, murders the guy, gets into a car and lights himself on fire. <laughs> and he just explodes. It's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's it's just, a, it kind of disorients you with uh, just how out there it is just right away. No, and and I was I was hooked from that moment on because I'm like, this is the kind of absurd bullshit that I'm here for. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't really say on my first viewing that I was a big fan. 
Oh, really? And what happened you, to the first viewing? I'm, I'm, my guess is that he approached it as a Halloween fan. That's, that's I, my guess here. I didn't do that. I'm not, I'm not okay, a typical okay. Halloween fan. Okay. <laughs> I think uh, I was kind of going to try to save us till we kind of dug into and analyzed it, but I, I consider this to be more of a one of the better second chance movies out there. Like it's, yes. it gets better the more you see it. Because the first time, usually you're trying to do things like apply logic. Mm-hmm. And logic isn't needed here. Because <laughs> a lot of this isn't going to make sense. Like there's some rationale for why some things are the way they are in this universe. Like they'll have like a little throwaway line. But it's just uh, you start like like Ebert's review to kind of uh, talk about some things that are in here. Um, he says... Uh, so I guess the bad guy wants to kill all the children and replace them with robots, and he just wrote, "Why? Oh. Why?" <laughs> I didn't. I don't get the sense that he wants to replace them with robots. Like that, I he think does. they lay it out pretty clearly. <laughs> is that the the idea is that the the killing of the children is part of the, the sacrificial the, the sacrificial <laughs> ritual of of Sahim that has been neglected for for so many hundreds of years now. So it's you know yes. it's, an, it's an appeasement kind of thing of, of tradition. It's which makes perfect sense. Like you don't have to go beyond that at that point. It's a it's a religious thing, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And like like I would say, really the the weirder question is more like, how did they steal this part of Stonehenge that they're using to magically <laughs> imbue the masks? He's got a little line like, you know, it wasn't easy. You know? <laughs> There's like a there's like a news clip or something where they're like they're talking about Stonehenge mm. in the background early on or something. It's just it's one of those things where you're like, roll with it. It happened. Just just roll with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> my my whole thing about horror is just not to ask why. I feel like that that ruins any horror concept. Really. I mean, uh, why are the characters acting this way? Why is this happening? You just have to suspend disbelief and enjoy horror for what it is. Too. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, um, you're you're drawn in instantly because of the aesthetic it really carries over that you know even though this is unrelated to the michael myers films that this is still stylistically similar in a well, lot of ways you know this is a john carpenter production it's got dean cundy doing yeah that. i was i was gonna say dean cundy was the director of photography so of course his his visual brilliance carries over from from the original film yeah and going back to the screenplay credit so um nigel neal he uh he turned in his original draft and Tommy Lee Wallace and Carpenter had notes and he's one of those guys that doesn't like to take criticism too well. So he asked to take his name off of it. And then apparently Carpenter did a rewrite and then uh, Wallace did. And that's how we end up with the, uh, the script as is the sole credit by Tommy Lee in which he probably contributed um, 20%. <laughs> I can, I can but, see that. Uh, you know, if you looking at the film, perhaps with less rose-tinted glasses than we, we do, or me specifically. Uh, it, it could feel like there are too many cooks going on on the script. Uh, I won't say it's the best script, but and, uh, yeah. it's, it's the exact well, amount of because, absurdity kind of I like need. Me, it kind of like meanders into like random romance plots and things that are like disconnected from what it needs to do. Uh, those things aren't really cashed in, but uh, yeah, it goes different directions. Uh, the, yeah. the romance works for me in a kind of way because it it creates a more like you know like you care about their dynamic a bit more so like if, if they were just two people who kind of teamed up i think that would be less convincing and the the kind of vast age difference and the skeeziness of it also works oh, man. because they've already set up 
Dr. Chalice is kind of a, a deadbeat and a bad dude. Like, like n- n- not the oh greatest guy, but at the same time, he's also got charm to him. Like, I don't hate him, but he's definitely like a shitty dad and, you know, kind of a, you know, a, a skis, you know, by, by all measures. <laughs> Yeah, he he feels like a Carpenter creation to me, like yeah. the the type of character that Carpenter like saw in movies, like almost like a John Wayne type in a way, mm-hmm. and it, that he just idolized growing up. He's like, well, I gotta have this deadbeat piece of shit that you just can't help but love, yeah, as the forefront. And, and that's what kind of like it's a. Oh, go ahead. Tom Atkins, you know, who plays him is he does a really great job, I think, and you know, obviously he didn't. I think get a whole lot of like other like meaty parts like this otherwise like it's a significant leading role here you know he, he goes throughout the entire film and he carries it I think which is a uh, fantastic oh absolutely I'm I think thinking about even... like I'm thinking about like Tom Atkins and like Night of the Creeps and and this yeah he, he has some good cult credentials between these mm-hmm. yeah he's like the quintessential guy for this type of uh, macho you know odor type of role <laughs> in my mind. Right. And yeah, the character, the character himself, I, I love what pulls him into the story. So you talked about, you know, the, the crazy dude just pouring gasoline on right. himself and blowing him up, you know, <laughs> leaving the hospital. Well, you know, Dr. Chalice is just there hanging out at the hospitals. I don't know if he actually does any doctoring work. He just seems to go around and slap <laughs> nurses on the ass. And, and he sees, uh, sees this happen. And he's just like, so curious about it, you know, and then they show him with his, uh, his family after that and you get the sense that he just doesn't really like him. <laughs> he he kind of tries, but not really. Like he, he got these, these yeah. kids, these cheap ass Halloween masks. Like he like he cares, but he's also bad at this. And yeah. he's all shows... he's, he's an alcoholic father as well. <laughs> kind of like absent. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, we're not making him conflict. We're, we're not doing a good job of making him come across as like the actually likable character he is. But, but he you is. Know, he is. It, and, and it's surprising that it can strike this balance really well, that he has, like, a layer of complexity to him that uh, a film like this wouldn't necessarily merit. But, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that it's here because it, it gives it a little bit more to, to chew on. Yeah. I think what sells it the most for me is so um, there's he's, – he's supposed to – he's already, you know, blew off the kids once. And uh, yeah. his wife, played by Nancy Loomis – who played Annie in Halloween is, uh, you know, just nagging at him about it. And he's like, I'll do it Saturday. I'll do it Saturday. And then, uh, the dude dies at the, at the hospital and he meets, uh, meets his daughter, Ellie Grimbridge. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you pronounce the name. And she's just, uh, young and seems like as curious as he is. And of course she's hot and like this weird pixie sort of way. She's like 20 and- years younger than him. Yeah, and she just has like this throwaway line, but where you know I have to find out what's happening happened to my dad, no matter what. And then it just does this amazing cutaway where it's like he thinks about it for one second, and then the next scene cuts to him on the phone with his wife saying, "I'm sorry, I can't get the kids. He's got a six pack of beer in his hand. He's jumping off to go on an adventure with the with the hot you know girl in her twenties, and." It's like the most reprehensible thing he does, and at that moment, I decided I loved him. You know, yeah, it's just... yeah. And, and I do think it's amazing how the film can make like such a deadbeat decision like that, like charming and endearing for the character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I think one of one of the other great things that 
should not be overlooked here is, uh, you know, some of the more interesting, like special effects and gorier aspects of, of the violence in the film, which is mm-hmm. actually more than like, even for a standard kind of Halloween film and such, which usually kind of... Kind of is. Yeah, it's Let's... it's definitely very gory, you know, you, and particularly in our... Yeah, weird, weird stuff. There's like incorporations of bugs and like snakes and stuff in, in some of the, the things, but... Because basically what happens is like the chip or on, on the um, Halloween masks, when they get activated, they shoot this Celtic blue lightning at people and, and turn their faces into disgusting amalgamations of creepy qualities. Uh, I don't know why, but it's what it does. And it's well, fantastic. <laughs> because it's been infused with the particle from the Stonehenge monument that they you yeah, know, just happened to still randomly. <laughs> Don't don't ask me to find a connection between Stonehenge and bugs, though. Like I I don't know where the Lincoln logic is there. That's that's what we mean when you say you can't bring logic to this film. You just no. got to roll with with what's going on because it's it is fantastic stuff. Just yeah. love how I love how it shows the effect of everything happening with the mask. Um, the masks are really good. Uh, the yeah. three masks for kids. Uh, you can still sell those. I want to get one of them. They sell them. They're one year. yeah. They're, they Absolutely. license them in real, and I'm like, I gotta get them too, but they're like forty five dollars, and I'm like, I, you know, I I, I only yeah, remember yeah. them at the end of the the Halloween season, and I'm like, ah, but you know, I don't want to buy it now and not have it on display for like two days. I gotta get one. I next almost year. got one this year, next year maybe. We should we should all get. We man, should we, both do it. Yeah, we can do it. We got three of us. Um, yeah. All right. Which which I'll one? I'll do uh, Shotgun Pumpkin. God uh, damn! <laughs> All right, I, I guess I like I like the witch one second, so I'll take the witch. You want the skull, Calvin? Yeah, well, it seems like that's my option. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm happy with all of them. Um, th- they're yeah, all the... really good, cool designs, evocative of the holiday. Um, you know, and and they're just really well designed masks. That's why I think that scene early with Doctor Chalice when he brings the masks to the kids, it's just like. It's like an entirely like you know deflating of his ego there, emasculating these because these masks are so nicely made and you know they're, yeah. they're, they're this great material and such this... stinky plastic ones. <laughs> yeah, with a with string, you know, yeah. that ties behind look terrible. It uh, shows them being it shows them being made in the film, which is kind of cool because some of those yeah. are the ones that went out to actual customers. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you about that. So um. Two of the masks actually existed mm. already. Um, the the skeleton and the witch, and they were made by the premier mask, uh, you know, company from the day, uh, Don Silver Post. Sh- Silver Shamrock. Don Post Studios. Not not Silver Shamrock. Silver Shamrock. So <laughs> so Don Post. They they already had a relationship with uh, Don Post Studios because uh, they they're the ones who made the Shatner mask. I'm pretty sure. Mm. interesting and, connection uh, they definitely yeah maybe i don't know i'm feeling kind of after i say that i'm kind of second guessing myself but i do know that they provided yeah i know it's i know they provided good. a backup mask yeah they provided backup mask for halloween too you know after the fact you know because for a while they had a trouble tracking down uh, the original michael myers oh, yeah, mask. I was gonna they say, didn't, didn't they lose the Don original one on the set of halloween too um it's this there's actually like a lot of rumors about that to, i i mean i can talk about different halloween movies too we're cool <laughs> but uh so what happened after halloween um nick castle took home the mask 
Mm-hmm. Um, there was that. There's actually two stunt masks as well. Deborah Hill took the stunt mask home. And the stunt masks weren't as high quality as the hero mask, that they, as they call it, you know, the, the right. main one. The main prop and, hero, yeah. Yeah, so Deborah Hill asked uh, Castle to, you know, can you give us the mask and then we'll give it back to you after the shoot. And he's like, yeah, I guess so. So it was above his fireplace. And, of course, in Halloween, too, you see how it's aged already and it's a bit grimy. And then after that shoot, um, the guy who played Michael Myers, ooh, this is how we connect these two movies. I got this. So the guy <laughs> that played Michael Myers, Dick Warlock, um, he actually took the mask home and he owned it for years and years. And now to connect it back to Halloween 3, Dick Warlock plays one of the robots. He's the blonde, blonde hair one. He's actually the main stunt guy. He was a uh, Kurt Russell's stunt double as well. So it's kind of like a big family. Group. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, um, the scene in, in Halloween three where they're making the masks, I believe that's actually Don Post Studios. That's really neat that, that there's all this uh, connectivity between the kind of films there. And you see really how it was like this interconnected group of, of people working on all of these films, you know, and they kind of brought yeah. them all to the, to the fold. You know, the the six degrees of Kevin York again. (laughs) (laughs) That's a cool thing with Carpenter films. I I found out there's so many different connections to get to this film and that like a, like it seemed like for years he was making, trying to get to where, what Halloween ended up being with the films he was doing. Well, I think uh, one thing we, we definitely need to touch on before we kind of, reach more of our conclusions here is the the silver shamrock uh, jingle which which i mentioned in the very beginning there but uh i i just think we need to kind of marvel at how successful it is uh in in how obnoxious and exciting and oh my god like like brilliant it is because it gets a lot of play in the movie <laughs> they probably play it, it's I sing it all the time i I have a good time singing it, uh, just to annoy my wife, and uh, I'm sure my daughter will join me soon. It's just like I, I, yes. I like that it's just like an adapt adaptation of like London Bridges too. It's right. so annoying, but it's it's just yeah. kind of done in this like kind of higher registered kind of like like whiny kind of voice, you know, counting down the days <laughs> till Halloween. But it's it's so fun. It, it but also obnoxious like like and it's the perfect balance of both and it needs to be because of how often they use it in the film (laughs) (laughs) it's actually uh the director's voice that they uh pitched up so he recorded it slow and then they sped it up and yeah and i love how throughout the film oh go ahead i was gonna say he does the voiceover for the commercial stuff too it's like it's almost time put on your masks and stuff yeah i believe that's tommy lee wallace as well isn't it yep and one more one more connection in the original halloween uh when they're watching the thing on tv he does the announcer voice there as well uh one more other connection it's kind of like the birthday song from happy death day I, I regret doing that episode at all together now. I thought I was purging it from your system by going through that with you. I thought it was I thought it was a good thing to do together. Like you'd feel better like having someone with you. But obviously I've just encouraged you. This was a big mistake. Uh and <laughs> I have to go rethink some of my life decisions now. Yeah. Way to go, David. <laughs> yeah. Uh we'll never hear the end of this, apparently. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, on the song, go on. Yeah, on the song, I love how uh, each time it plays in the movie, you can just see like the disdain on somebody that's in the scene. Like they are just (laughs) so fucking mad at this song. And it is like the earworms of earworms, you know. It's it's so earwormy. It's great. Probably the 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 best thing to come out of the film. In a film full of great things, yeah. I I gotta ask how as as both of you guys being big big Halloween franchise fans, uh, where does this kind of land for you? I know it's kind of like the the black sheep. It's different from everything, but you know we we still gotta count it in with everything. It's still a Halloween film. It's um like there's there's the S tier, which has one movie and one movie only, mm-hmm. and H two O is yeah H two O Fuck, fucking H2O. Uh, no, it's, it's where Rob Zombie's movie's at, actually. <laughs> no. Oh, the shit here. I, I got you. Yeah. yeah. All right, so you got Carpenter's original at the top, and then on that second tier of, like, flawed but solid films, I think that's where Halloween 3 ends up for me. Uh, is, is there any other from the franchise? I don't think I'd kind hear of... it, but... Go ahead. It's, it's one of the top top films out there. I, I got to say, I for... I like a Halloween... H2O and then Halloween 3 and then the others it's just a sharp clip um, maybe Halloween after Halloween 3 and then then just a nosedive mm-hmm. I maybe whenever we get to our H2O podcast eventually we can argue about that but I just I can't you guys going to have to hash movie. it off well it's, it's <laughs> yeah. interesting I'm, from the guy who has a redemptive angle on Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 so you know uh Mm-hmm. throwing stones well, in glass houses and whatnot <laughs> yeah i think it's why i like this because i'm not afraid for halloween movies to be very unhalloween like mm-hmm. you know it, h2o feels like such a hard end and a hard out for them too i wish that carpenter did get the money that was you know i wish he <laughs> did take the minimal money to direct it but yeah i don't know if you saw it david but he uh when Jamie Lee Curtis was trying to get everybody together for Halloween H2O, Carpenter's like, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, I want $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> like, no bullshit. That's that, what he that threw man, no, no negotiating. That man is an <laughs> idol. That, that's brilliant. Uh, It'd be worth it today, though. I mean, you'd throw any money to get Carpenter to do it if you were willing now. He's know? just he's just content to compose the music for the new ones, and I'm just glad we have that. Uh, yeah. Playing playing video games, watching basketball. I think that's I, his life now. For for me mm. personally, I think for the series, even though I'm not as vested in it as you guys, uh, all of course the original Halloween is is untouchable in terms of its craft and its you know uh, ability to scare and its iconic you know uh, icon to it. I just, I like Halloween 3 more personally. I just get so much more joy and fun out of it. And, and I love watching it every year now. Like, it's That's just such crazy. a blast. <laughs> There's a difference. How I many Halloweens have you seen, though? You've seen like is, three of them, right? Yeah, this is, this is three. I'm just, I'm, I'm literally really only comparing these two and saying that the original Halloween is obviously a superior film. You have to be a crazy person not to think yeah. that. But in terms of like enjoyment factor, like Halloween three just pushes my buttons. I kind of get it because you watch horror movies this time of year for their seasonal quality. Yeah. Like you're looking for like yeah. the autonomal quality of horror. So I understand why you'd think that. But you're right. Wrong. I, I just what, understand yeah. why you think that. And you know, the original Halloween is a very California autumn. <laughs> they tried, <laughs> yeah, but you know, you can see those palm trees. <laughs> I can I can accept that just because you you know, acknowledge that one is 
the superior film. De- definitely. There's, yeah. uh, you know, al- although the filmmaking here, I think probably doesn't get the credence it deserves either. I think Tommy Lee Wallace does a hell of a job directing it. And of course, Dean Cundy's cinematography is yeah. fantastic for it in, in creating this great atmosphere. But yeah, like to, to compare and try and argue, like that's that's a losing battle to try and make that point that Halloween 3 is in any way, like on equal footing in terms of like, direction and you know quality especially as like a horror film like you you might as well claim that the original halloween is like the poster child for fantastic horror filmmaking just bam Mm -hmm. we went over this last year i think (laughs) yeah that we did um yeah i think three it kind of there's i think tommy lee did do a good job he didn't really get to have a a really great career as a director he 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 did did direct the uh the tv it movie with tim curry which i also have a a fondness for though that's yeah even even more of a mess that's a whole other thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. did that and i think he did uh shit he did the sequel to fright night which i haven't seen Mm -hmm. and i I don't think a lot of people have so (laughs) but Tommy Lee, he he probably deserved better. I think there's a bit of a jankiness to the movie early on. Yeah. In just a few spots, but it pretty much once they get into Santa Mira, mm-hmm. that's when it really just kicks into gear for me. Like, yeah, there's just something about that setting. It's it's just it's just so weird. Like, so they drive into town, and all the inhabitants. And it's you know, residents just staring at him and stuff. That's where the Deborah Hill and Tommy and I guess Carpenter too probably always said this wasn't a knife movie. This is a pod movie. Hi, this is Calvin. Just need to tack a note onto the end here as my co-hosts were abruptly replaced by robots and um, their silver shamrock mass activated. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed the show, and excuse the chainsaw and robotic noises. Uh, we wrapped up here just a minute later, so not missing much audio, but uh, wanted to give a heads up. We